Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 19. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is God's word. Uh, Amen. Uh, Thank you, uh, Susan. Uh, Good morning, my name is Drew Bennett, I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, It's good to see so many of you here on this holiday weekend. College football has started again, um, and that is always a good thing, isn't it? The air is going to start getting cooler uh, soon, we hope. Uh, I always look forward to that first day where you wake up and there's just a little Christmas in the air, because Florida summers can be long and hot, Uh, but man, uh, it's... uh, it's beginning to be that time of year, uh, and so I'm very excited. We are in the middle of a series all throughout this fall, and really it's going to be a series that will take us an, an, about a year and a half to complete, uh, and we're telling the story of the Old Testament or the story of, of God in the Old Testament, and so we really are trying to tell a story in this sermon series, and two weeks ago, if you were here, we saw that God created the world out of nothing by the word of his power in the span of six days and all very good. Last week, we saw that God's purpose in creation was to turn the entire world into his glorious palace garden, and the tool that he would use to accomplish that was humanity who he made in his image. And so it is our job to learn the will of God in heaven, and then use our resources to see his will done on the earth uh, as it is in heaven. But here in Genesis 3, what we learn is that things quickly fall apart because the first man and the first woman were not content to live under God's authority. They sinned. This is the story of the first sin. They sinned, and by their sin they fell, and death and disease and hatred and envy and murder and all of these things came into the world. And so the value for us of these chapters, okay, again, one more time let me say this, and and particularly the value of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. is not only to tell us where we came from, but also to show us why things are the way they are why we experience life the way we do. Or let me put it this way. What Moses describes here in Genesis 3, the tree and the fruit and the serpent and all these these images and these these things is not just a one-time event. This, what we see here in these verses, this is happening every day, 
all the time in every single one of our lives. And we have to know that or we won't be able to properly make sense of life. We need to know it in order to be wise and effective as we try to go throughout our lives. And so this morning, I want us just to walk through this passage. And that's really what we're going to do. We're going to start at the beginning and go all the way uh, down to the end. So I want you to see four things from this passage that help us to understand why we experience life the way we do. See, that's the point of this narrative, to explain to us why we experience life the way we do and how we can live faithfully in it. We need to know these four things. We need to at least see them, okay? First, the sin, and that's verses 1 through 6. Then the fall, verses 7 through 13. Thirdly, the curse, verses 14 through 19. But then right in the middle there, I want us to also see the hope, or I really should have used the word, the gospel, because that's what it is. So we're going to look at the sin, the fall, the curse, in the gospel, all of those things in these, in, in the, in these verses, beginning here uh, at the very beginning of the chapter in verse, uh, verses 1 through 6. So the first thing we notice in this passage is the sin of Adam and Eve. Um, I remember years ago, in the wake of the Columbine shootings in Colorado, Billy Graham went on the Larry King live show. And of course, what was happening in our culture, and it's interesting to think even the difference in just 15 years, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how massively the culture shifted, but 15 years ago or however many years ago it was that that happened, there was this big public debate on what, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong with the world, why are things the way they are, I mean, how could this sort of thing happen, you know, in America, in this small suburban, you know, city, and Billy Graham went on Larry King Live, and Larry King looked at him and said, you know, Dr. Graham you know, what's wrong? What's wrong in the world? How can these kinds of things happen? And Billy Graham, uh, he, he, he answered the question. He said, Larry, long, long time ago, there was a man and a woman in a garden. And then he proceeded to tell the story. And you know, it really is, it's the right answer to the question. You see, what this passage teaches us is not only where sin came from, but what it is. What is sin? The catechism's answer to that question is any lack of conformity to or transgression of God's law, right? In other words, sin is not doing or being what God commands, or it's doing the thing God forbids. And here in this passage, we see God puts a tree in the the middle of the garden he's created, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He told the man and the woman, eat from any of the trees in the garden you want, but don't eat from the fruit of this one tree, and if you do, you will die. And what do they do? They do the very thing he tells them not to do. So this is a story about human sin. Not just the first sin, but it's a story that illustrates the dynamics that are involved in all sin. The story of the serpent and the tree and the fruit tell us how sin began, but also how it works in the human heart for all time, for all of us. And it's so huge. I mean, this really is, I hope you understand how daunting it is to take Genesis 3. It's so huge I can't possibly create it all, uh, cover it all in one week. And in fact, we're going to spend three weeks in this chapter But I'd like to make a number of observations about what we learn in this text about sin. So look there at verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? And then he goes on to to pose all these questions to Eve. So I want you to see first a number of things here. The first is that the story begins with a talking snake. (laughs) And of course, Christians believe you're here and you're not a Christian, we believe that this is to be, uh, this, this is the biblical figure, Satan, God's enemy and ours, a powerful angel created by God good but turned evil by his desire to 
for preeminence above God. And so the first thing we learn is that there are spiritual forces of darkness at work in the world, and that neutrality is not optional. We are born right in the middle of a cosmic conflict between good and evil, and what the passage teaches us is, is we have to choose sides. And in fact, here they choose to side against the, with the enemy against their creator. Now the second thing we're told is that the serpent is craftier than all the other animals. And that's a clue about what's going to happen as the story unfolds. Look there again, uh, verses 1 through 6. What does the serpent do? What strategy does he employ? Look there, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of any of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you know, for you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, so what does the serpent do here? What strategy does he employ? He offers a powerful lie. His name literally means accuser, and here he accuses God, and here is the substance of the accusation. Let me just sum it up for you. Here's the lie. This is the lie. Uh, from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which if you've, not, if you've not gotten a copy, I'm telling you, you have to get a copy. They're, they're $10 in the back of the room, okay? Here's how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you, the serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. That's my favorite part. Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's word hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. And suddenly she didn't know anymore. She picked the fruit and ate some. And Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. So the essence of the lie, God doesn't love you. <clears throat> he doesn't want what's best for you. He's holding you down. He's, he's keeping you down. He's holding out on you. You can't trust him. You'd be better off without him. See, it's fascinating to me, and, and really, I hope we'll pay attention to this. Satan doesn't go after the existence of God. He doesn't go after the power of God. He goes after the goodness of God, and his strategy is to cause Eve to question God's love for her so that she will act on her own without him. And that's the taproot of every sin. It's the thing underneath everything, as one of the pastors I listened to this week said. It's the great lie that is at the heart of all unbelief, which is at the heart of every sin. The sin underneath every sin is this sin of unbelief. I mean, why am I greedy with my money? Instead of being generous like God commands me to be. Unbelief. I don't believe he will take care of me. I've got to keep it for myself so I always have all that I'll need. Right? Why do I live towards other people demanding that they love me and serve me rather than and take care of me instead of putting all of my energy into serving them and taking care of them? Um, the answer is unbelief. I've, I've got to take care of me. If I don't take care of me, who will? See, so whatever struggle... With sin you're currently engaged in, if you dig deep enough, you'll find at the bottom of it this sin underneath every sin, this sin of unbelief. You'll find the lie 
reverberating in your soul right at that place. God doesn't love me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't love me. So it's the lie there. That's the power for sin in our life. But let's keep going. Watch what happens. What happens when Eve begins to question God's love for her? What's the immediate impact of her unbelief? And this was a new thought for me that was really good, actually, in my own just personal wrestling with my heart in, this, in, in, in considering this, this passage this week. Look what, look what happens. She quickly grows discontent. See that? She's no longer happy with her circumstances. She loses her joy and her peace. And it's subtle, and I don't want to make too much of it, but I think it, it is here, and it was really powerful. If you pay careful attention to the text, what she does is, is she puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden, not the tree of life. And in chapter 2, if we were to go back there, if you have a Bible and you want to turn back, we're told there that it's the tree of life that's in the midst of, of the garden, and then also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there. But the implication is in chapter 2 is that the tree of life is the very epicenter of the garden. It's the symbol of God's generosity and provision to both of them, God's love and care for them and his promise to them, this symbol of this tree in the very middle of the garden. But if you look at her response to the serpent in verses 2 and 3, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. And what's happening is Eve puts the forbidden tree in the middle of the garden where the tree of life is in chapter 2. And Bruce Walke, who was my professor in seminary, picks up on this. And he says, this is the way he put it, he says, the pragmatic effect of the question is to get Eve focused on what she cannot do. Instead of setting her sights on the gift of the tree of life and the freedom to enjoy all the other trees, the woman focuses on the one forbidden tree. In other words, she has become fascinated with the one thing God forbid her from having, and the epicenter of her life has become the thing she wants but cannot have, and the result is discontentment. And her discontentment was powerful enough that she was seduced to act on her own without God, and that is really the essence of sin. See, sin is looking at God and saying, not your will, mine be done. I can't trust you. You're not for me, right? I've got to take care of myself. Or you can put it this way, it's this inner heart attitude and function thinking God is the enemy of my happiness and if I'm ever going to be happy and fulfilled and have the life that I want to have, I'm going to have to take my life into my own hands. And that's what Eve did. And it's what we continue to do, all of us, all the time, every day. That's what the Bible means by sin. But here's what I want you to see. Not only sin, but look what happens in the wake of their sin. As soon as Adam and Eve sin against God by eating the forbidden fruit, things begin to change. Everything is different. Almost immediately, there's a shadow that's cast across the garden. The chaos and the darkness that were there at the beginning in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, which God dispelled in the creation returns, and all the good things that God has made begin to crumble around them. The church has historically referred to this as the fall. And by that designation fall, we mean that we're not only guilty, we're also broken. We don't work right. Our relationships with one another don't work right. Life doesn't work right because the world we live in is a fallen world. It's broken. And I want you to see in verse 7 and following all of the ways that we see brokenness begin to come into their experience here in the garden. Okay, first... Adam and Eve experienced spiritual brokenness in their relationship with God. Look at verses 7 and 8. 
Before this, God would come and walk with them and talk to them. But now, when they hear the sound of God walking in the garden, look at verse 7, what do they do? They hide. They sew fig leaves together and they hide. And this image of walking with God refers to the intimacy that they were created to experience with him, okay? So we were created with this, for this kind of intimacy with God. And the tragedy of the fall that we all have to deal with is, is that we've lost this communion with God. We no longer see him face to face. Because of our sin, we are like them. We're afraid of him. We're hiding from him. We're alienated from him. And so they immediately begin to experience in a very real way this spiritual brokenness in their relationship with their creator. And their spiritual brokenness with God begins to immediately lead to their psychological brokenness within themselves. In chapter 2, we're told that the man and the woman were naked and were not ashamed. And you know, I started, started to think about that. That means they, looked, they, they didn't look into the mirror and hate what they see. They had no sense of guilt or shame or regret or fear of being known or seen. Okay, They lived their lives completely without posturing. I started to think, can you imagine being naked and not knowing you're naked? Am I the only one intrigued by these kinds of things? Right? Can, you, can you imagine that? Because that's what the text says, right? They were naked and they didn't even know they were naked. I mean, what does that mean? We're going to talk next week all about that, but it means they had no sense of guilt or shame or regret, no, no fear of being known. They lived their lives completely without posturing, right? They don't even know they're naked. Then they sin, and what happens? What's the first thing? All of a sudden, here's shame, right? Verse 7, the text says, Then they, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, right? I mean, can you imagine being so unaware of yourself that you don't even realize, you know, I don't have any clothes on, right? This means they realized in this moment that something was wrong with them. Shame is this sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. It's, it's knowing you know, it's, a, it's another theological catchphrase would, would be to say that, that we now live with a want of original righteousness, okay? That's the way the theologians say it. That is, we can't escape the thought that something's wrong with us. We know we're not right. We know, we know we're guilty. And if you want proof of this, I, and maybe, again, this is my own life, I, I'm here to tell you, my, my diehard, absolute proof of the fact that every single one of us in the room knows that something's wrong with us, that we're a lawbreaker, that God should come and punish us and vanquish us is, if, if ever I look in my rearview mirror and there happens to be a police car following me, I just know at any minute he's going to turn his lights on and pull me over. Does anybody else do this? And I start going, did I, wait, did I roll through that red light? Wait, I must, well, he must have, you know, you know, and then I'm like, I'm, I'm looking for a gas station to pull over in and kind of sit and hang out there for a minute and let him go by, right? I mean, does anybody else do this, right? It is, it's right there. And again, maybe I'm just a sensitive, you know, conscience. But anytime there's a police officer following me, I'm absolutely convinced he's about to pull me over. And it's because of this unease about ourselves knowing that we're guilty and we deserve to be punished. And it causes us to go through our lives trying to prove ourselves, trying to win a righteousness for ourselves, which of course leads to boasting and gossip and being hypercritical of other people. And they're all strategies to try to prove to ourselves and others that we're okay because we experience this psychological brokenness within ourselves, which third... I've already alluded to it a little bit, leads to social brokenness with one another. One of the commentators I read this week made the point that they immediately sew fig leaves together to cover themselves, but God's not there yet. It's not until the next verse that they hear him walking in the garden. So who are they hiding from? They're not hiding from God. 
What are the fig leaves about? The fig leaves are this attempt to hide from one another, and that's the problem in all of our relationships. We don't trust one another. Can't be transparent with one another. We posture and hide because we don't feel safe with one another, right? You, you were made to rest deep in your soul and God's love for you, to live absolutely convinced that he loves you and delights in you, but the tragedy of the fall is that we've all lost this sense of God's love. And so in result, the impact of our having lost a sense of his love is that we now move out into relationships without the love of God in our heart. In other words, we go out trying to get love and approval from others, trying to fill up the emptiness we feel inside. That we're fallen means we're no longer free to love and serve one another. We use one another to meet our personal needs and to fill up our inner emptiness. We are fundamentally selfish towards one another and that selfishness destroys our intimacy and communion with one another and you see that here. But lastly, they experience, let me get these right, spiritual brokenness in their relationship with God and psychological brokenness and alienation within themselves, social brokenness and alienation with one another, And then the last thing you see here in these verses is that they experience physical brokenness with the creation. Physical alienation with the created order. We turn our backs on God and that puts us at odds with the creation. What we're told here is that work becomes toil. Things don't work right in the earth. The ground does not produce fruit and vegetables anymore unless you weed and fertilize. And then maybe with lots of hard work, there's disease and floods and earthquakes and hurricanes And all of these things, the Bible says, is the creation groaning for its redemption in response to the man and the woman's sin. Irma Bombeck, who was admittedly a little before my time, she was a humor columnist in the 1960s about life in suburban America, and she said it this way one time. She said, public enemy, number one of the housekeeper is dirt. You start cleaning at the one end of the house, and by the time you get to the other end, the part you already cleaned is dirty again. Fight dirt, fight dirt, fight dirt all your life. I don't know if anybody can identify. But she said, and what's your reward for this at the end of your life? What do you get for all this fight dirt, fight dirt, fight dirt? You get six feet of dirt. And that's where we live. Now, let me make a couple of applications before I move on, okay? So what is wrong with the world? See, knowing all of this, all of these different parts of the alienation and the brokenness that we experience helps us to answer that question about what's wrong with the world. See, if you don't adopt this worldview, then you'll become too simplistic in your answer to that question. You'll take one of these categories, and this is what most of us do, and it's what most churches do. They take one of those categories and make it the big deal, right? And the problem with being too simplistic and reductionistic is that you won't be wise. We saw that when we, when we walked through Proverbs together. See, is it just a heart problem? Is that really what's wrong with the world? Is it, is it that there are bad people out there? If so, then the Savior will be moralism. Or is it that, you know, is the real problem that we should address in our culture, is it really that people just have low self-esteem? And if we could just learn to believe in ourselves, then everything would, you know, really be okay. If so, then the Savior will be self-help, excuse me, self-help psychology. Or is it is the problem that, you know, society is just out of control, right? And if so, if that's the problem, then the Savior will be education and political change and social engineering. Or is the problem pollution and climate change, then the Savior will be environmentalism. But the Bible says the problem is sin, which has caused spiritual and psychological and social 
political and even physical brokenness in the world. And if the problem is sin, then the only Savior is Jesus. Sin is the problem. Not low self-esteem, not lack of education, not those people, not religious people or irreligious people, not the state or, the politi- or any political institution. Sin is the problem, and, and then everything that flows out of it. And you have to remember that, or your approach to the problem solving in your life. Remember, how do we live in this world effectively if you don't keep in view this breadth of application Your problem-solving approach will be too simplistic and you won't be wise and you won't be very effective. But second application, not only how does it help us answer what's wrong, but secondly, what's our work? See, this helps us answer the scope of our mission. If we don't adopt this worldview with all of its complexity and comprehensiveness, then our understanding of our work as Christians, our work as a church, will be too simplistic, too reductionistic. Because you see, what happens is is conservative churches see their main job as converting people and leading people to some kind of personal spiritual experience, you know, with God that will make them good. But historically, conservative churches have refused to get involved in the social and political spheres and engage with social and and physical brokenness. And then there are the liberal churches that, that are... They historically have been more inclined to get involved in social and psychological projects. They're concerned with social justice and change, but they would never call people to repentance. Seeing it gets out of balance. So in order to be faithful, we have to do all of these things. Our mission has to include strategies to attack sin in the spiritual and the psychological and the social political and the physical realms and to engage brokenness in all those areas and seek to heal it. Okay? Now, one more thing before I talk a little bit about where we find the power and the hope to engage in work like that. And that is we've seen the sin, we've seen the sin, we've seen the fall, but I want you thirdly to see the curse, and I'm not going to spend much time here. I want you to notice God's response. Beginning in verse 14, he issues a series of curses. God address, God, in other words, God comes and he addresses their sin. And, and one of the commentators say this is a judgment scene. This is, this is God coming in anger against the man and the woman because of their sin. And the curse is a product of his anger. In other words, our life doesn't work right, not only because we're screwing things up, but because God is set against us. I mean, God is set against sin. And here he comes, and he first turns to the serpent, verses 14 and 15. We're actually going to look at this in just a minute, because it's actually part of the good news, and not the bad news, what he says to the serpent there. But he curses the serpent, then he turns to the woman next, because remember it started with, the, with the, the serpent, and then it went through the woman to the man. So God starts with the serpent, then he turns to the woman, and looks what he, look what he does with the woman. He curses her, but it was interesting to me, he primarily curses her in the sphere of her relationships. Okay, She will experience great pain in childbearing. I've been there four times, I've seen it, believe me. Right? Anybody? Women? I am so thankful to be a man. That's, I'm serious. That's not a joke. But I think that word means frustration, sadness. I don't think it's necessarily the actual process of childbearing, uh, but also uh, it you know, doesn't get any easier once they come out, does it? She's also told there will be perpetual hostility 
between she and her husband, if you see there, because her desire will be for him. That is, she will want to dominate him, to get out in front of him the way Eve did here in the story, right? To be the one calling the shots, but at the end of the day, the reality is, is he will still rule over her, so she'll be frustrated. And man, that's another sermon for another day. <laughs> and we're going to move on. Right? But he curses her in the realm of her relationships because that's where, I think, in the design of God, women live and find the most fulfillment most of the time. Okay, and then verses 17 through 19, God finishes by dealing with the man, and it's interesting, he curses him primarily in the sphere of his work. Now, he does say something about his failed leadership. It's hinted at there in verse 17, because you listened to the voice of your wife. (laughs) Now all the men are going, oh, man, right? And again, another sermon for another day. There are major implications for headship and for male leadership and all those things in this passage. It's just not our job this morning to be, to be working on all that. Okay, maybe another day we'll come back to it. But because you listen to the voice of your wife, work will be hard, thorns and thistles and sweat, and all of that only barely to get by. And so there's, there's this curse that falls upon the serpent and the woman and ultimately the man because of their fall which happens because of their sin. So there's a lot of bad news in this passage, right? The sin, the fall, the curse. So what do we do? Right, I'm tempted to curl up into the fetal position and just wait for God to come and take me away from all this, right? I mean, this is a little overwhelming. And so what do we do? And the answer, you know, the answer to whether or not we just kind of cower uh, and wait is is a resounding no, because even here at the very beginning, even in the midst of all of this bad news, there is good news, there is gospel here in this passage. So I want to look in more detail at verse 15, if you would, with me. In verse 15 is what Christian scholars call the proto-evangelium, which means the first gospel. So how does God respond to sin, right? Well, first with judgment and curse, but right on the heels of the curse, there's gospel. Isn't that amazing? There's gospel here in Genesis 3. The gospel's right here. Let's read it. Verse 15. Right in the middle of God's curse to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what does that mean? How is that gospel? Now, pay careful attention. If you look at the first part of the verse, God says humanity is going to be divided between those who will believe the lie of Satan and continue in their hatred of God and their rebellion, and then... Also those who would love God and serve him and side with him against the serpent. But then you get into the middle of the second half of the verse, and all of a sudden it changes from the plural to the singular. So let's read it again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and out of nowhere, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, well, who's the he? The answer is that God is promising a future seed a human king, a warrior, a champion, a hero who would come and do battle against the serpent and crush his head. Well, who's he talking about? Christians believe this is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ thousands of years in the future, and it's also a prophecy of the work he will come to accomplish, that he has come to destroy all the works of the serpent. This gets developed all throughout the Old Testament Scripture. It's actually the theme that we're really going to trace as we go uh, throughout all of the Old Testament for the next year or so. 
Psalm 96, for example, says that when the Lord comes to rule the earth, the psalmist says that the seas will roar, they'll shout, that the earth will tremble, that the fields will begin to sing, and that the trees will clap their hands. Now, who knew that trees had hands to clap, right? But the point, why? What's the point? What's the point of what the psalmist is saying? It's because of what God is saying in these verses about when this seed comes, everything will get healed spiritually, psychologically, socially, even physically. The creation will be healed of its brokenness. There'll be no more curse. And that's why the earth rejoices and the trees begin to sing for joy. It's what we sing at Christmas. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. You know the words? He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Joy to the world, right? He's coming to crush the serpent and to bring healing to all the different aspects of our brokenness. Obligatory Lord of the Rings illustration, okay? <laughs> I promise only one every so now, every, every so often, but in chapter, in book five of the, of the books, which is called The Return of the King, hmm, um, there is a chapter entitled The Houses of Healing. It's toward the end of the story, after the great battle that has finally allowed good to triumph over evil, the man who all along has been the rightful king, but he's been in exile, has finally taken up his place, and with, it was his strength, uh, it was his strength and his power that, that proved decisive in the great battle, and he's come back from his exile, and he's won this great victory, and immediately the first thing he does upon winning this victory is he begins to go throughout the city, healing the soldiers and the people of their battle wounds. In his hands, herbs that were used and only powerful enough to cure maybe a headache become potent enough to heal those on the brink of death. And when he called the names of the sick and the dying, they awake at the sound of his voice. And as the people begin to see him going through the city, what he's doing, they begin to remember an old proverb that, that told of the true king, that the hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. This is what Jesus has come to do. I read this this week somewhere. When you bring a person, when you bring a relationship, when you bring a marriage, a neighborhood, a heart, a psyche, anything you bring under the kingdom of Christ, to the degree you bring it under the lordship of Christ, to that degree it begins to heal. Jesus is the king who heals. But he can't deal with, the bro- with our brokenness and with the curse without dealing with our sin because it all flows out of sin. See, for Jesus to lift the curse, to heal the world, he had to first deal with the guilt of our sin. And this, too, is hinted at in the prophecy. Look what it says. Jesus will crush the head of the serpent, but in the process, the serpent will crush his heel. Now, what's that mean? It's a reference to the cross. On the cross... Jesus dealt the death blow to Satan, but at the expense of his own life. On the cross, he literally stomped on Satan's head, but he was bruised as well. And the Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Galatians we've been reading in community Bible reading together, in chapter 3 said this, Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. It's fascinating. The gospel writers report that as part of the crucifixion scene that plays out in the Gospels, at one point Jesus is crowned by the Roman soldiers. And do you remember what he's crowned with? Crown of gold? Crown of jewels? Crown of thorns? 
You see, the symbol of our curse here in Genesis 3, thorns and thistles that grow because of our sin. Jesus was crowned with a crown of thorns, which is the symbol of the curse we live under. And it's a subtle way of saying that on the cross, all of God's anger against sin, all of his wrath and his condemnation against our sin and the brokenness it has brought into the world was pointed at Jesus and away from us. Now, because of the work of Jesus, God's blessings flow into our lives far as the curse is found. And according to the Bible, it was this single act that accomplished the overthrow of the serpent and the healing of the entire world. Jesus is the king who heals. And the good news of this passage is that he can heal our hearts too. Remember, what did we say got us into this mess in the first place? Sin begins with unbelief about God's goodness towards us that creates discontentment that leads to acts to us acting independently of, of him. See, it's the lie, remember? God doesn't love me. He's not for me. If I'm ever going to be happy, I have to take my life into my own hands. This is the power of sin. See, the cross answers the lie. You cannot say God doesn't... See, if your faith is in Jesus, if you're here and you're a Christian and you've put your faith and your trust in him, you cannot say God doesn't love me. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that's whosoever, right? I mean, you can, we cannot say he doesn't love us. Look at Jesus hanging upon the cross. And if the lie is the power for sin, then the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's love for us, toward, you know, the truth of God's love for me and toward me in Jesus is a greater spiritual power that can undo the lie and destroy the motivational center of sin in my life. Isn't that good news? At the very least, it'll make me humble. In light of the mess that I've made and the capacity for the mess that I can still make in my life and in other people's lives, in my relationships with other people and my posturing of myself and all of these things, at least, at the very least, it, it creates a brokenness that would create a humility in light of my own failure and a joy that is so pervasive in light of what Jesus has done that I would go through my life humble, grateful, but at the end of the day, confident in his love for me. See, what's the great struggle? What is the great struggle of the Christian life? It's to believe the truth, not the lie. And see, when we become people who begin to believe the truth, it changes everything. New, new places of intimacy are opened with God. Right? We, our relationship with God gets healed. We begin to stop beating ourselves up. We begin to stop being filled with all this existential angst, as you know, the postmodern philosophers would say, right? We stop, we stop being so full of doubt and, and hypercritical and then critical of other people because we, you know, it heals you know, our own hearts and our own psyches. It heals relationships, right? When I, when I begin to believe the truth and stop believing the lie, it changes the way I do relationships. Everything in my life begins to be healed. But don't think you ever, we ever move past this. The great struggle of my life and your life, whether you're new to Christianity a couple of weeks or whether you've been in the church for a really long time. See, what this passage shows us is the great struggle and the great task before us is to believe the truth, to not believe the lie. That's the power for the healing that we so desperately deserve. And that's the opportunity we have this morning as Harry comes to lead us in songs where we can, this next song we're going to sing is just this movement of faith and repentance that's absolutely beautiful. 
And so I would encourage you, that is the movement of faith and repentance this morning, to move away from the lie that's dominated your life, that's caused all of this destruction, and to believe once again the power of the truth of God's love for you in Jesus Christ, that it may heal your heart and our life and ultimately our city and our world. So let's pray to that end. Can we do that? Lord Jesus, come and dispel our gloom with the bright truth of your love for us. And may it, where the lie continues to reverberate and echo in the recesses of our souls, causing us so much confusion and trouble in the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we deal with other people and the way we go out into the world, would you instead replace the lie? Would you silence it? And instead, uh, would we hear the song of your love for us reverberating in our souls? God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. And would it be the very thing that would heal our hearts and heal our relationship and heal our city and heal our world? We pray this, that we might be fruitful and that you might be glorified in us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The irony is that uh, unlike uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, when God came to them to address their sin and deal with it and to curse, uh, because Jesus has become a curse uh, for us, now God would come to us to deal with our sin, but it's completely different. Uh, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then despite uh, all of uh, your, the guilt of your sin and the brokenness it may have caused in your life and the real reality of, of feeling the effects of the curse, if your faith is in Jesus, the truth is, is that because God poured out his wrath and anger and ultimately his curse upon Jesus on the cross, he can now, and I, raise my hands over you to offer his blessing. Isn't that amazing? I mean, and that may be something you have to reach out and grasp, which is why many of you, as I pronounce the benediction, you hold your hands out as if to say, God, I don't even know if I believe that. But, oh, I'm grasping for it. I'm hungry for that, right? And so this is the, this is the balm and the medicine for your soul. And receive then the promise of this benediction. Uh, that the lie is just that, a lie. But the truth is, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's come in Jesus to do good to you, to silence forever the accusations of your own heart. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. Now go in love. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.